Akshi, when was the last time you found yourself on a plane? Ooh. And in the um, air also. <laughs> I, I'm going to say the last time was like the previous winter break. So mm. literally the year of 2022, 2023, I think I flew to, uh, what was it? New York? Oh, very Maybe. cool. Very fun. Very fresh. <laughs> Love yeah. that for you. You fly into LaGuardia. You fly into Newark. Ooh, I really don't know. I think halfway through plane flights, I have a lot of flight anxiety. So I forget mm. what I'm doing till I um, land when I'm in the space. But what about you? When, when was the last yeah. time you flew? You know, I haven't been in an aircraft in the air since before the pandemic. So it has been since 2019 that what? I have flown anywhere. And honestly, I'm kind of dying. Like, I just <laughs> want to get on a plane and go somewhere so bad. It has been three years, Ren. Get over it. <laughs> yeah. No, nearly, probably nearly four, because I don't remember when in 2019 the last flight would have even been. I don't right. know if I even went anywhere in 2019 anymore. It's all a blur. So I got to get in a plane. I got to get you up do. there. <laughs> and speaking of getting up there, let's talk about it today. Uh, how does flight work even? Like, what is it? What What is happening when we get in these big metal birds and they take us places? Ooh. And we're going to dive into that today on the episode, on this episode of The Unfinished Mind. Hi, welcome everyone. Um, Hi. Let's have, let's, let's tell you about, let's talk about flying. Yay. How's that sound? Sound good? Let's do that. Let's talk about flying. Yeah. So first of all, let's start with some of like the basic physics of flying, get through the, the, the science-y stuff here. Um, first of all, when you're flying, there are four main sort of forces that physicists and aerophysicists rely on to ensure that an aircraft flies correctly, you know, aerodynamics. And those forces are lift, drag, weight, and thrust. Um, we'll break them down. Lift is what happens at the wings while the air passes over them. Air will move faster above the curved wings and thus lower the pressure above the wings. And the pressure below the wings is then relatively higher, which pushes the plane upwards via the Bernoulli principle. Um, the next force is weight, which is, of course, the result of just gravity's pull on uh, the object in the sky, the plane, the thing flying. Um, this must be completely counteracted by the lift force, so that Bernoulli effect, in order to actually get the plane to heft itself up. The other force uh, we've got to consider is drag, which is the resistance caused by the air uh, the plane is traveling through. So basically your air resistance is your drag force. And finally, thrust, which is the force from those big jet engines that counteracts the drag. And it must, you know, all these forces have to have to work in such a way that the plane can form the vector in the direction you need it to go. Um, so yeah, some, some, some cool flight physics there. There's definitely more that goes into it. Of course, obviously, got to consider a bunch of stuff, but those are the basics. Um, other factors in that you may want to consider are such our temperature, which may increase or decrease with altitude, and uh, humidity, which can change just based on the climate you're going into. Humidity also reduces lift as air becomes less dense. So there you go. Um, in animals, though, when we're talking about how they deal with these forces and how they get in the air, because, you know, it's not just the, the things we make that can fly. We were inspired by birds or whatever. So the same four forces do apply to flight in animals 
However, animals flap their wings relative to their body to generate the appropriate lift and thrust to counteract weight and drag respectively. So that that lovely flapping motion just sort of propels them. It's like a propeller plane, you know, just gets them, gets them where they need to be. They flap their wings up and down to generate motion and can angle their wings to ascend upwards or travel forward. Uh, the phenomenon of gliding, where they just sort of coast, no wing movement, is uh, is a cool little little thing that some animals are able to do. They take advantage of directed movement and reduce drag forces on themselves um, with like the wind and you know, just kind of just kind of momentum sometimes, um, and that gives them some maneuverability without having to use as much energy with flapping. Insects and flying squirrels are also able to do this without technically like being able to fly. They just like glide super good. So there you go. And then of course there's the sort of infamous example of something that no plane I know of can do, which is flying backwards. Um, hummingbirds can do that, which is cool. I love those little guys. They're so tiny. The idea of a plane flying backwards is the most terrifying thing I can think of. <laughs> yeah, that's horrifying. Yeah. Like, that's apocalypse scenario stuff. You see that <laughs> the world is ending, like something happened. <laughs> yep. But hummingbirds are designed to do that perfectly. I don't know why I said designed. That implies several things I don't want to get into on this episode. Right. <laughs> but hummingbirds can move their wings in 360 degrees, so full rotation on that cuff there. Um, most birds cannot do this, so it's a unique trait. And as a result, they can employ their wings in unique ways to move forward, backward, upward, downward with incredible precision. They can also hover by just moving their wings in an eight-shaped pattern uh, to fly and perfectly counteract gravity. So they're kind of like Michael Phelps, you know, <laughs> their arms can just go flying at, oh, and, wow. and it works. <laughs> I'm so glad. I know like humans derive so much from nature. Just I'm so glad we didn't take from the hummingbird on the plane. Like yeah. that's, that's <laughs> thing I would have sat in it. I would not have traveled in it. <laughs> you wouldn't travel in something whose wing or whose like wings could move a full no. 60. Can you no? imagine a plane hovering? I think I would. Oh, my God. Well, it's basically okay. a helicopter. Helicopters can do that. Yeah. And I would never, ever sit in a helicopter. Fun <laughs> fact. <laughs> oh, OK. Understood. Yep. So, gotcha. <laughs> That's fair enough. Yeah. Speaking of like, you know, humans adapting and figuring out a way for us, not flight mammals, to take flight. There's a lot of history as to how that happened. So we're going to start all the way in ancient Greece. It is one of the earliest stories of human flight, and it is depicted in the legend of Icarus. So if you guys haven't heard, Icarus was the son of Daedalus, who built a pair of wings using wax and feathers. And Icarus was testing out the wings to see if they could fly, but he ended up flying too close to the sun against his father's orders and ultimately fell to his untimely death. You know, that's why people say, don't, don't fly too close to the sun. Yep. <laughs> Your wax will melt. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, no other reason. <laughs> For no other reason apart from that. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, from moving on from ancient Greece and the story of Icarus, we've got Leonardo da Vinci, who is a polymath. Just a small shout out there. Da Vinci researched animal flight and designed several flying machines based on his work with observ observing, observing the animal flight. And though these designs were never actually built, 
Devonshi's work is preserved in publication uh, called Codex on Flight of Birds. So again, I'm very, very glad that Leonardo da Vinci did not observe hummingbirds. I think he did. <laughs> well, maybe he did. I'm <laughs> not sure. sure. Oh, yeah. Moving on, we've got George Cayley. He was the first person to conceptualize the forces of flight, which Ren mentioned were lift, gravity, thrust, and drag, and designed a vehicle that could use these forces to stay in the air for a long period of time. He did build several, several prototypes, but none were actually successful at flying because of two reasons. Number one, he could not successfully power the vehicle. And number two, his materials were way too heavy to be balanced in the air without power. So, you know, he, he got pretty close, but I think he was missing those two little quote unquote factors. <laughs> Moving on from him, <laughs> we've got Jean-Marie Labrie. Uh, is it a he or a she? Who's to say? Oh, man. Um, probably considering just sort of history in general, I have my, I have a guess. I have an educated <laughs> guess. Let me look up real quick. Yeah, right. this is a male. Oh, man. At least as far as I'm aware. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> Jean-Marie Libri. He achieved flight with a non-powered air glider pulled by a horse. And this is the first photographed flying machine in 1868. So I'm sure if you search it up, you'll find this little air glider being pulled by a horse. So he found the power, which was the horse, and he found a light material, which was the glider. <laughs> the, design's kind of fun. the design looks like a bird, like it, like, yeah. front, like it's literally shaped like a bird. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I get, again, take it, take it from nature here. <laughs> Next, we've got Clement Ader. He steam powered an aircraft called Eoli, and it was partially successful. He achieved 50 feet of elevation, but could not sustain the flight. Um, you know, we're, we're getting closer and closer here. So we've, we've achieved pretty decent, like, you know, momentum in trying to build this aircraft. And, and we come right to the Wright brothers, who I'm sure is something Wait, Ren, your face is... <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I just looked up a picture of Ader's Eol, the, right. the the last aircraft we were talking about. It looks so rad. It looks like a oh, bat. My. It's amazing. You guys have to look this up. Everybody look <laughs> this up right now. It looks so cool. Oh, my God. It's making me want to search it up. Wait, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Oh, my God. You see, it's kind of rad. <laughs> it's super cool. Y'all should really search this up. We're having a great time here. It's wow. E O L E. Gotta look that up right now. Really give, it, give it a look. <laughs> Clement Ader had the right idea. Um, you know, and moving on to what I who I believe, or you know, whom I believe. I don't know what's the correct English here. These two people are the most famous, I think, in the history of building aircrafts. We've got the Wright brothers. Um, their names were Wilbur and Orville Wright, and they they created the first successful powered flight in December on December seventeenth, nineteen o three, in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. It flew thirty seven meters and it lasted for twelve seconds. It was an improved and an, and later on after they built this prototype, they built an improved model which was called the Wright Flyer Three, which flew thirty eight kilometers in thirty eight minutes. And it was the longest yet recorded power flight. So we went from 37 meters to 38 kilometers. That's insane. <laughs> Indeed. After they flew the, 
Wright Flyer 3, they decided to disassemble their plane until they secured contracts in America and France, because obviously they've just discovered something quite incredible and they're going to keep it to themselves till they can get a contract, which is smart. I understand. (laughs) And then their next model was eventually made to carry a passenger, which is how we have, you know, our um, commercial flights today. And the first passenger's name to fly in this plane was Charles Furness, and he flew in it in May 1908. I am just in awe here as to how quickly, honestly, it feels like they went from prototypes and like gliding things to passenger flights, basically. Yeah, I mean, well, this I always love looking at like the first plane because it's like it's just like this guy sort of hang gliding on his like <laughs> like it's not a very good yeah it's not a very good system I I don't know if I'd want to do it but cheers to Charles Furness for going up there just raw dogging because <laughs> it's it's impressive yeah it's a raw dogging flight <laughs> raw dogging flight like that yeah no um I would like an enclosed sort of aircraft you know personally i like it when the air is not in my face as i fly but you do you king um (laughs) speaking of other flight kings let's talk for a moment about louis it could be louis it could be louis i think it is louis (laughs) that is that is his name Okay. Louis was famous for mono, the monoplane model that most of our modern plane designs are based on. So before now, all these planes have been having like two wings. Um, and, and this, this, this Blura created the, uh, the monoplane model. So he was also the first man to cross the English Channel via flight and won a thousand pounds sterling for it from the Daily Mail. Uh, another prominent example of sort of aircraft revolution is uh, the use of aircrafts in by the military. So World War One broke out in 1914, and it was at this time that several countries began developing aviation forces in their military and really upping like the technology that was going into these planes. Hugo Junkers, for example, designed the Junkers J-1 aircraft in 1915, which was the first full metal aircraft. Full Metal Alchemist. Around the world, a lot of uh, flight activity was being done at this sort of like, it was like the flight craze. I mean, once you see a plane, you got to get in it. You got to get up there. I get it. People were excited. Um, The first transatlantic flight all the way across the Atlantic Ocean was done by John Alcock and Arthur Witten Brown. The first trans-Pacific flight was done by Charles Kingsford Smith. And the first flight around the world was done by four U.S. Army Air Service aviators. So there you go. We've got planes that can go all over now. Um, In the passenger age, uh, we finally developed some motivation for commercial flights, you know, so that people could actually travel and and the um, hmm, commercial flights sort of surged as airplanes became capable of carrying more passengers. The Douglas DC-3 was the first profitable passenger aircraft service, flying within continental United States with 32 passengers and no cargo. Wow. <laughs> Crazy. This yeah. is this is some intense workup. Like we've got you've got some good traction here with, you know, getting these flights to basically get around the world pretty well. For sure. <laughs> and you know. 
because of the advent of all of this, we entered something known as the jet age. And the first passenger in a jet aircraft was named the Havion Comet. The Boeing 707, uh, as I'm sure most of you've heard of, was the most successful competitor of commercial jet aircraft and ushered in their 7x7 commercial aircraft series, which still to this day is present. Um, the design details that actually made the Boeing more successful include one, they had a wider fuselage, which is the main body of the aircraft, which allowed for a lot more passengers. Number two, they moved the engines to below their wings for fire safety reasons. And number three, they used two engines rather than four to make a lot of the fuel and stuff more affordable. So, you know, those three things really ushered the Boeing as a good competition um, for um, jet aircrafts. And the Boeing launched the 747, which was a large size aircraft commissioned by Pan America World Airways or Pan Am. And this aircraft was 2.5 times larger than the standard 373. The additional space allowed multiple different cabins to be developed, which led to our modern model of first class, business class and economy class flight seating. So this was like really the template over which, you know, flights that we enter today, what we see. The Boeing's main competitor was actually Airbus, who had equally well-built well vehicles and innovation. And the two major successes of Airbus were the successful launch of double-decker passenger seating and greater fuel efficiency that reduced operational costs compared to Boeing. So at this point, like you've got these big boys like out in the sky. Now it's all about the competition. Who can make the better model, the more efficient model, and the more affordable model? Oh, yeah. And that's, I mean, arguably still the still the struggle today. Oh, yeah. Uh, another sort of craze in the aviation world is the craze of supersonic aircrafts. So supersonic refers to the ability to travel faster than the speed of sound. This was known as breaking Mach 1 and is still known as breaking Mach 1. So the first aircraft to break the sound barrier was U.S. Air Force's Bell X-1, flown by Major Chuck Yeager, on October 14th, 1947. So that's pretty rad. I bet, I bet his ears popped. I bet they did. Yonk. Damn. I don't like that. I hate that. It's the worst feeling in the world. Real bad since it's the worst part of flying for sure, for oh, sure. Yeah. This aircraft was powered by the rocket-based engine that used liquid oxygen and ethyl alcohol fuel. So it's pretty strong organic solvents right there. Um, Concorde was also the first and most well-known supersonic passenger aircraft. It was a joint venture between the UK and France and only flew for a short period of time. Uh, supersonic passenger aircrafts did not become a commercial success due to the high cost of operation, um, but they are still used some in some places, you know, um, for example, current projects in supersonic aircraft include Boom Supersonic's new Overture aircraft, which is expected to fly at Mach 2.2 speeds. So that's pretty cool. And of course, there's a bunch of military planes that fly that fast. Yeah. Honestly, the <laughs> these words are so lost on me. Like, what yeah. is Mach? <laughs> mock, yeah like why did we call it mock can you guys yeah. just be normal like say faster than sound by so uh, by a tenth like <laughs> say to the power of 10 is it that hard okay 
So we talked a lot about this evolution and, you know, just to go into a little bit about what, you know, it, we, we're not hit, hit the peak yet, yet, guys. We've got a lot of future, future iteration for aircraft evolution. The next major step in the future of aircraft evolution appears to be revolutionizing the way aircrafts are fueled, which I think is trending. Like, you know, we've got like cars changing their like fuel to like electric cars, basically. You know, you're not we're not using like diesel and petrol anymore. And current research looks into ways of increasing the fuel efficiency of aircrafts, making airplane operations carbon neutral, maybe, and developing new fuels that are eco-friendly, inexpensive and renewable. And this is to basically, obviously, offset the need for burning fossil fuels, which plays a significant role in global warming. So, you know, in all of this, we've really contributed to the sad and constant depletion of the ozone layer. And, you know, hopefully, hopefully we are able to come up with a way to stop this. That would be, that'd be really good. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice? We were there. <laughs> oh my god is, i know i mentioned this right now in passing but i really want to kind of dive into the pollution that's caused by flying it's a very important conversation to be having uh in conversation of flight um especially because i know a lot of we know a lot of people who take commercial flights and private planes for fun and it's kind of like do you do you think about the things that you do to the rest of the world question mark right it's like what are for fun come on come on bro come on he's getting an economy class and call Stop. it a day like you don't need to take a private plane to an hour away from you just don't no yeah and while we're at it maybe like take a break on the just throwing rockets in the sky like maybe just stop doing it so much for a minute while we figure this out i don't know it's oh, just a thought you know, just to fuel the fuel the conversation a little more. Um, no pun intended. To, I was like to to fuel, <laughs> fuel it with kerosene, perhaps. Oh my god! Common aircraft fuel. <laughs> Carry on. So let's talk a little bit about pollution caused by flying. The there are many um, carbon offsetting strategies to reduce the the toll that flying's had on. The environment. Number one, uh, just to give you a couple of statistics here first before we get into all of that, is that air travel accounts for 2.5% of global carbon emissions. That is a lot. I promise you it's a lot. <laughs> um, the, in the US in 2020, flying accounted for 8% of transportation emissions, but less than 3% of total carbon emissions. And for reference, Transportation accounted for 27% of the economic sector emissions. The economic sector emissions and agriculture accounted only for 11%. So just to put that into perspective, that's that's a crazy amount that's just being allocated for flying, um, taking flights out. And it, it really puts things into perspective of how these planes, and like there's so many, there's hundreds of planes flying every day. Like this is definitely something to consider. And you know, in this conversation, it's not only about carbon emissions. We're talking about particulate matter um, from these jets that can provide the perfect surfaces for the formation of clouds. And these clouds then go ahead and reflect some of the sunlight that's coming in from outside. And as we know, the earth reflecting this kind of heat is exactly what's, you know, a big cause of global warming. 
And some of the greenhouse gases produced by all of us also contribute to the destruction of the ozone layer. So it's like, if you take what you've learned from, I don't know, is this like chemistry probably? Maybe, I don't know. But like <laughs> when the heat in the earth that's being reflected gets trapped within the earth's like atmosphere, that's when we start getting global warming. And that's exactly what these clouds and these emission of greenhouse gases and stuff are doing um, to our environment. According to the International Civil Aviation Organization or the ICAO, a round trip flight from New York to Los Angeles produces 1,249 pounds and, of carbon. You know, just to give you guys a couple of statistics, a round trip flight from Paris to London creates 250 pounds, which is about 111 kilograms of carbon, while taking the Eurostar, which is a train, will create about 50 pounds or 22 kilograms of carbon. So, you know, take public transport. Take I mean, train. Don't, don't, don't take an airplane. That's also public transport, but just yeah. take the Euro train, you know, just do that. If there's a train, take that train. Take that train. The unfinished <laughs> mind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, moral of the story. Carbon calculators vary in their estimates, but there are a few important steps to take. Try to minimize the number of connections or connecting flights that you have, or Try to fly nonstop. That's usually a better option. You can also buy carbon offsets, which offer a way to balance out your pollution by investing in projects like, per se, planting trees that reduce emissions of carbon dioxide or other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. They have become common uh, add-ons and add-on options on flights, in fact. So, you know, be environmentally aware and cautious and active. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you and good night. Speaking <laughs> of things that are uh, not anything Oxy just said, environmentally okay. aware and conscious, let's talk about ghost flights. Let's talk about those for a second. Flights with nobody on them. Let's oh, talk yeah. about it. Maybe. So some people may argue like, well, if everyone just stops taking flights and, you know, does their part for the environment, um, flights won't happen. And obviously, if, you know, you just one person choose not to take a flight, the, the, the flight will still happen, you know. So there are a lot of policies in place, like by companies and airports that require flights to happen, regardless of who's flying. So even if a plane is completely empty, um, you may still have to fly it somewhere else uh, for other people who want to get on the plane. So sometimes it doesn't really work. For example, in the winter of 2021, in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, for example, the Lufthansa uh, airline alone flew over 21,000 empty flights, aka ghost flights, just to maintain its airport slots. So these were unmanned uh, carbon emission sort of things that happened. And due to the shortage of airports, Airlines compete for spots at airports and they need to maintain a certain threshold of flights to keep those spots. So even in times when air traffic is low, they're still going to have to fly their planes because they need to keep their spot open at the airport for when air traffic is high. Um, you know, that's just profiteering, baby. That's just another side effect of capitalism. I don't like it. I don't like it, but, but there it is. Ain't that Sorry. just the way? 
uh, to take a hard turn away from the sort of economic and environmental crisis that is the flight industry, let's talk about flying's effects on the body. So first of all, safety. Um, as you can imagine, the fear of flying is like one of the biggest fears out there. Everyone's kind of afraid for their safety. <laughs> yeah, it. <laughs> you know, she has it. So, ooh, ooh. Um, but in actuality, aviation is the safest form of long distance transport, um, especially today when we have a lot of safety measures in, in place. In 2018, the all accident rate measured in accidents of uh, accident per million flight. That's how they give you this rate. Uh, it was 1.35 uh, flights per million, which is the equivalent of about one accident every 740,000 flights. So, like, your odds are pretty good. And the, uh, you know, as long as your your cabin doesn't depressurize and your, you know, ears don't get super gross and congested-y, pretty safe on the body. Um, But one thing that does happen during flying is uh, a disruption in homeostasis. We sometimes see dehydration often on flights. A dry pressurized cabin sort of bothers our bodies and makes it use up water faster and it's, you know, problematic. Um, if you are flying across time zones or exceptionally long distances, there are significant effects on the circadian clock. Um, your circadian rhythms can get all kinds of out of whack. Um, and, you know, takes a little while for all of these, all of those proteins and, and intrinsic clock rhythms to reset themselves. And this is known as jet lag. Uh, it's when you get your jet lag, you change your time zones and your body is all messed up about it. Uh, let's also talk about some myths or rather like misconceptions about, about flying. Uh, one is that people believe the radiation levels being that high up in the sky are unsafe completely, but it's not necessarily true that they're unsafe. Uh, they're a bit higher than what you'd be exposed to during an x-ray and, you know, uh, over a long, long period of time could perhaps be unsafe, but so is the sun. So that is what it is. Um, not as dangerous as people seem to think. Another one is deep vein thrombosis, DVT, which is sort of when a giant blood clot forms in your leg or wherever, usually leg, most commonly leg, um, because of flights, uh, because of the long period of, you know, sitting down, not a lot of movement, slows blood flow, and it leads to blood clots, which can break off and create life-threatening pulmonary embolisms. Um, this is actually real. This is not, this is a real one. You should be worried about this, but not that worried because like most healthy people won't have to have this problem. If you're an older person, you should probably be wearing some compression socks on flights. Uh, compression stockings can mitigate this issue. Make sure you don't get it. Um, but also if you get a chance on a plane, always try to stretch those legs. There you go. There's your I'm advice. Me being short has its perks. I don't really... You know, I'm not like scarce for space, but I know ah. my tall friend counterparts, uh, <laughs> <laughs> they really got to yeah. get up and walk, walk it oh, off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, try to wiggle around a bit and you kick the person in front of you and then you feel awful because you just did that. You did that little yeah. annoying kid thing. Honestly, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Profusely yeah. apologizing. But like, I think I would rather 
get kicked and just let that happen than like get kicked and someone tries to like lean forward through the crack. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. That would freak me out very badly. You're kind of just like, get away. Get away from me. Yeah, I'd be like, now you're behind me the whole flight. What are you doing back there? I'm so sorry. <laughs> Hands you like a like a like a packet of peanuts through the crack. These are for you as penance for my crimes. Like spears is locked. I hate it. <laughs> I hate it. A little goblin. <laughs> Gosh. Anyways, moving uh, on. <laughs> you know, just to take a take another 180. There's all the 180s on today's episode. Um Let's talk about some controversies, you know, flying in the news. What has flying done today? You know, just the juicy, the juicy bits. The headlines. Got the headlines. <laughs> We've got Boeing right up on top. The Boeing 737 MAX passenger airliner was grounded worldwide between March 2019 and December 2020, which is 20 whole months, the longest airline grounding, longer in many jurisdictions after 346 people died in two crashes. Oh my God. The FAA certification of the MAX was investigated by the US Congress and multiple US government agencies, including the Transportation Department, FBI, NTSB, Inspector General and Special Panels, and engineering reviews were uncovered um, that there were other design problems unrelated to the uh mcas in the flight computers and cockpit display it's James. just stuff stuff really hits the fan sometimes and you gotta call in all the big boys and you're like what went wrong <laughs> yeah gotta, i mean that's a, a horrible horrible disaster you know like yeah. um what's wrong with the planes two that's not a coincidence one no, also bad <laughs> like start with one um yeah glad they grounded them yep uh, another example is, of course, the holiday season of 2022. Uh, a bunch of Southwest flights were canceled. Um, other airlines had weather-related cancellations, but Southwest shut down more than 15,000 flights over the holidays, canceling more than 2,500 flights on Wednesday, December 28th, and making up most of the 2,800 U.S.-based cancellations of flights on at the time. The Aerospatial or BAC Concorde is a retired Franco-British supersonic airliner jointly developed and manufactured by Sud Aviation, later called Aerospatial. I'm going to say, I'm going to, I'm going to pretend that's what it is. I think that's and right. The British Aircraft Corporation or the BAC. Its top speed was 1,354 miles per hour. And for reference, the two fastest commercial planes now have a top speed of Mach 0.85 or about 650 miles per hour. So fast. It was really, really fast, which essentially more than half the travel time, but the sonic booms over the ground limited it to transoceanic flights only. You know, if that happened on, on land, uh, you'd be hearing some real loud, some real loud stuff. <laughs> yeah, a uh, bunch of broken windows, I bet. Yep. On 25th July 2000, wow, that is 23 years ago, Air France Flight 4590 
crashed shortly after takeoff with all 109 occupants and four on ground killed. The only fatal incident involving Concorde. Commercial service was suspended until 2001 and Concorde was retired in 2003 after 27 years of commercial operations. Yikes. So, you know, it's it's the it's the good, the bad, the ugly. Indeed. Yeah, and that's just a few of them. There's a bunch of really bad airlines out there. You know, if you want to just look up crashes and horrify yourself, go for it. Yep. Uh, let's talk about some of the socio-political like implications of flying. So we've mentioned like a lot of agencies in this last little section. Let's dive into some of them. Um, the Federal Air Marshal Service, or FAMS, which is just a great acronym, is a law enforcement agency in the U.S. that hires federal air marshals to oversee and enforce safety and security on national transportation systems. The responsibilities of FAMS is to investigate suspicious activity on flights and be trained to protect passengers with firearms and self-defense techniques. So these are like literally dudes in disguise on planes who can can take action if they need to, which is kind of wild. I always try to spot them and I never can. Like I very rarely, if I see the air marshal, I'm like, it's you, it's you, you're the air marshal. <laughs> it's like a game of imposter. <laughs> I found you. Yeah. Uh, so you may be wondering, or maybe not wondering at all, but uh, but what happens? What happens at an airport on a plane? What happens when you have a baby on a plane? What happens? You know, uh, if you watched our previous episode, you would know. This is true. If you go back to our citizenship episode, we do answer this in great detail. In the U.S., the uh, the citizenship is granted to any babies born in U.S. airspace or water. As for the importance of flying and flight and the flight industry on economies. Flights promote both economic growth by creating jobs and uh, the facilitation of international trade and the support, uh, sort of support for tourism and travel. You know, they're, it's good stuff. Uh, in addition to sort of being like a big economic booster, um, flying is also a show of status and wealth. You know, if you've, if you've taken a lot of planes, um, that means you're you've probably had the means to take a lot of planes, which is which is cool, um, but also means you're you got money. For example, like private jets and uh, frequent flights by celebrities uh, often is often touted as a show of status. In summer of 2022, many celebrities like Kylie Jenner and Drake were sort of under fire for their use of private jets for short flights that could have been car rides and produced way less emissions. Um, and although private aircraft account for 4% of all aviation emissions and a smaller percentage of planet emissions, the issue is that private jets are many times more polluting than commercial planes per person and are also kind of unnecessary. Private aircraft pollution is growing exponentially each year despite these problems. So the wealthy elite have the luxury of flight, and that is, that's that's the thing. Oh my God, I don't like it here. I don't, don't like, like it here. Well, you know, moving on to something equally, you know, comedic, um, <laughs> the Karen freakouts. Planes are a common scene where Karens, or, you know, it's, it's a slang term for an entitled white woman. And on plane, they're shown attempting to use their privilege to demand their way. There are many, many videos online. Honestly, you can search these up. You will find a plethora that have filmed these scenes in which they demand unreasonable requests, complaints, and or assault others on the plane verbally or physically. So, you know, we've got some some thorn of hands here. 
hours of entertainment. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, just to round it up, there's there's a lot of, you know, national, international laws about flights because flights are one of those things that cross borders, that cross countries, that cross regions. You've got to have these laws in place. So who who owns the air? You know, it's a very American question. <laughs> who got the dominion? <laughs> Yeah, but who's taxing it? (laughs) (laughs) In the U.S., the Federal Aviation Administration, or the FAA, was established in 1926 to regulate navigable airspace by determining plans and policies. The air above 500 feet was declared as public domain. The airspace of the U.S. is exclusively the United States by federal law, and any citizen has the public right of transit. In 1946, the United States versus Cosby Supreme Court case determined the landowners have right to the air up to 83 feet above the ground. Um, However, the ownership of the air between 83 to 500 feet above ground is still undetermined. Drone pilots are interested in using this undefined space, although the FAA has been sending cease and desist orders to these pilots arguing for safety reasons. You know, it's interesting. It's interesting how this... this, um, policies work well you know that's what we've got we've got some drones we've got these miniature things that can fly in between these undefined spaces (laughs) so let's see what they do about that right and lately just to bring like a really really recent one that i think like this script was written before but there's everyone's like freaking out about um all these like weird high high altitude unidentified flying aircrafts that have been shot down lately like there was like a weather balloon thing in florida or whatever and then from china there's that one but then there's some ones where they don't even know where they're from in the north it's like wild uh but (laughs) anyways everyone's always freaking out about what's going on up there and i think it's funny (laughs) it's it's the mysterious space above you know it's it's interesting (laughs) but yeah i hope you've got y'all have got some good information on flights here there's a lot lot to work through lot to work through, a lot to understand. Um, and you know what? If you want to learn more, learn it somewhere else. XOXO, this is the Unfinished Mind. Thank you for joining us on this episode, and we will talk to you next week. I've been Ren. And I've been Akshay. And we'll see you later. Goodbye. Bye. The Unfinished Mind is brought to you by the Polymathic Scholars. Our scriptwriters this week were Arian Austria, Neha Yawalkar, Darshan Selva Kumar, and Niels levy Tubo. Sound designed by Jensen Richardson, Amaris Mendoza, and Bolong Tang. Produced by Liz Kinnerk and Bill Tang. Our publicists are Claire Evans and Audrey Holchen. Hosted by Ren Smith and Akshipan. Thanks for listening, and remember to follow your curiosity. <laughs>